Whether we admit it or not, at some point in our lives, every one of us asks this question, what is the meaning of life? Even during a very confusing, strange time like this, we're asking that question. For some of us, our life has sped up. We have more and more things to do, new responsibilities, things have changed, we have to work harder, we have to work longer. And in the midst of all this craziness, we wonder, why is this all happening to me? What is the meaning of my life? Now, for some of us, our life has slowed down during this time, and we have more more free time or more time that we can devote to other activities. And we may begin to ponder, what, what is the purpose of my life? What in my life, what about my life has meaning? All of us, though, ask questions like, is there more I have to do in life? Is there something else I need? Am I stuck the way I am? Is there hope for growth, for change? What is the meaning of all of this? And we can try to figure out that meaning on our own, but our answers ultimately will not satisfy us. Because even if we come to an answer in the back of our mind, we'll wonder if that's true. I think my life's about this, but what if it's not? Fortunately, though, the Bible, God's Word, does give us an answer. It does tell us what the meaning of life is. We're studying through the book of Philippians. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a church in the city of Philippi. He's stuck in prison in the city of Rome, but he's still writing that we can rejoice together and we can grow together. In this letter, we've seen how Paul told the Philippians about who Christ is, He's talked about the difference that Christ should make in someone's life, particularly if their mind is focused on Him. He gave us some examples of people who were focused on Christ, his his friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And now he's going to apply what he said about Christ and about those two men to all of the Philippians. And as he does this, we'll discover he's also telling us the meaning of life, what is most important. So let's read our text and find it. Today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read it. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, but feel free to follow along in whatever version you have. Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. Paul writes this, Finally, my brothers, or my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though... I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and that we can rejoice in it. Thank you for your great love and goodness to us. Thank you that even though there are things that don't matter, that don't have meaning, thank you that true meaning can be found in the surpassing worth of knowing you. As we know you more, and as you increase, we find ourselves decreasing because it is all about you, God. You are the meaning of life. So may you be the focus of our time this morning. May you mold and shape us so that we would either come to know you or grow to know you more and more every day. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that I pray. Amen. So let's look at this text. Everything that Paul has said and everything that he's going to say should lead us to what he says in verse 1, that we should rejoice in what we know. Rejoice in what we know. He starts the verse by saying, Finally, my brothers, my brothers and sisters. You know, I've heard some people refer to this as kind of uh, like a joke about preachers or, or those who give sermons. Because we're only in Philippians chapter 3, and if you look at the whole book, there's four chapters, and we're just at the beginning of three, so we're really like halfway through the book, and Paul says, finally. There's, the joke is that a pastor or preacher, when he says, finally, you know that there's still a half hour left of his sermon. But in Paul's case, that phrase is probably better translated something like, all that remains is to talk about this. But regardless, it's still something he wants to emphasize. He wants to emphasize that we should rejoice in the Lord. If you remember, rejoicing is one of the themes of this letter. We rejoice and we grow together. And rejoicing is something Paul writes about a lot. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, he says simply, rejoice always. Rejoice always. We're to make the, let the Lord make us happy. We are to let the Lord make us happy. We're to find our joy in Him alone. Paul says it's no trouble. It's not tedious. He will never get tired of reminding the Philippians of the truth that they already know. He says it's safe for you. It's a safeguard for their faith. And it's a good lesson to us as well, because we should be in the habit of reminding ourselves of what is true, reminding ourselves of what we know about God and about Jesus Christ. 
The Apostle Peter puts it this way in one of his books. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So he's saying they know these things, but he's still going to remind them because he says, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. It's a challenge to us as well that we should dwell on, we should meditate, we should think about who God is, think about what he has done and the impact that that makes in our lives. When things are hard, we should remember, we should think about God, and that should lead us to rejoice. Now next, Paul turns to address a threat to this joy. He wants to emphasize that they should be rejoicing, but there's some things that can take away from that. And what takes away from that is if we're focusing on what doesn't matter. If we focus on what doesn't matter, then we won't be rejoicing in the Lord. And in this string of verses, he talks actually about two things that don't matter. The first thing is what we do. What doesn't matter? What we do. As he says in verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What Paul's doing here is he's giving a strong warning against those who emphasize outward behavior. What he's talking about or who he's addressing are Jews or people who were at least claiming to be Jewish Christians who thought that someone had to obey all of God's law. Everything God said in every part of the Bible, you had to obey all of that in order to be right with the Lord. And the people who believe this, they would often call Gentiles, those who did not follow God's law, they would call them dogs. But here, Paul is saying that term should really be applied to them. He's using a couple words here from Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, which says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. We see those two words there, dogs, evildoers, that Paul uses in our verse here. That other phrase, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, seems strange, but we can't really see it in English. But what Paul's doing is he has a little play on words here, because that phrase, mutilate the flesh, is very similar to the same Greek phrase for the word circumcision. What Paul is doing is mocking those who say you have to obey all of God's law. The teaching that they emphasized the most was circumcision. It was a ritual that they did for their infant, young men. But Paul is saying that when you're circumcising someone, you're really not making them right with God. All you're really doing is mutilating your flesh. He's mocking them. He's insulting them. And he's justly angry because by saying this, they're taking away from, they're detracting from the truth of the good news of the gospel. Paul's message, the message of Christianity in the Bible, is that salvation is by grace alone. And these people are adding additional works. They're saying grace is great, but you also need to do these things if you want to make sure that you're right with God. And if throughout his letters, Paul has his harshest criticism for these kind of legalists, those who said that people like these Gentiles, they had to become like Jews, they had to obey everything, the Old Testament law says, or else they really don't know God. But these things that they're doing, all these laws, all these extra things that they're adding, they really don't make them right with God. 
They say that if you're circumcised, you'll be more spiritual. And while today there's few people going around churches arguing that everyone needs to be circumcised, the, the, the principle we still see fleshed out. We hear things like, well, if you just do this, then you'll be right with God. You know, if you do this thing in your life, then you'll be a better Christian. People who do that, they're the ones who love God. Oh, people who love God, they would never do that thing. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter what we do, that our actions are unimportant. If we know Christ, we have a genuine relationship with Him. Our lives will change. We will live in a way that honors what God has said. But what Paul is going for here is that it does not primarily matter what we do or don't do. Our relationship with God is not determined by our actions. So anyone who says you need Jesus and you need to do these other things, that's someone who's either been misled or is trying to mislead you. The Bible is not a do-it-yourself guide. And so then Paul sets up a contrast with these false followers with true believers. He says in verse 3 that we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, or God in spirit, who glory, who boast and rely on Christ Jesus and put no confidence, no trust in the flesh or human effort. These are the true believers. And how we live and who we praise must be motivated by a heart that's after God, not by the specific things that we do. Jesus said in John chapter 4 that the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. It is believers in Jesus who are really the circumcision, who are really those who have been set apart by God. They are the ones who have a covenant relationship with God. They are the ones who receive His promises. Paul would write about this in the book of Romans. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. So when Paul says this, we are the circumcision, he's talking to true Christians. This is us. True Christians are those that God has changed their hearts and has made them one of his people. And God's people do not have confidence in the flesh and human effort and what they do. They do not have reliance and trust in their actions. And think about it. If the Spirit of God leads our worship, and if Jesus is our glory and praise, well, then there's no room for praising and honoring ourselves. And, and Paul is going to illustrate this with his testimony, his life, the story of what God had done to him. He says in verse 4, "...though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also." If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. If there was anyone whose worth could be determined by what they did, no, it, it was Paul. He was second to none among men. And outside of Christ, he had much to boast in. He could be confident in his works and his merits. 
He'll write about this in places like 2 Corinthians 11 and Acts 22. He listed here for us, verse 5, he says, he's circumcised on the eighth day. His family obeyed the Old Testament law. They obeyed passages like Genesis 17, Leviticus 12, and Paul was circumcised. Then he says at the end of verse 5, as to the law of Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. This was a religious group within Judaism that demanded strict obedience to the Old Testament law. Pharisees were passionate about living for God, doing what God had said, and living for Him in the tiniest detail. They searched through the law to figure out, make sure that everything they did would honor God. And they thought by doing this, this made them better. It made them more acceptable to the Lord. Paul was so passionate about this. He was so zealous about it that he actively persecuted Christians. He says in verse 6, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. He searched them out. He had them thrown in prison. The book of Acts tells us that when he was still going by the name Saul, it says Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison just because they were Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. Once they were arrested, Paul approved when they were executed. And I want to emphasize here that he wasn't particularly more evil than any other person. He thought he was doing the right thing. As he says in Galatians 1, 13 and 14, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I. For the traditions of my fathers. As he says in our passage, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He obeyed God's law as he understood it in a way that was blameless, without fault, without wrong. But, as he says then in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of of Christ. All these things he did, Paul realized they didn't matter. As he says in 7, all we do, we really can just count as only a loss. And this is really hard for us to grasp in our human nature because we want to be proud of our accomplishments. And God gives us work. He gives us roles and responsibilities, and he's honored when we do them. But The things we do, they will not last forever. And if we find our satisfaction, our joy, our pride in what we do, if we place our meaning in them, then we will be disappointed. What we do doesn't matter when we're answering the question, what is the meaning of life? Now in those verses, Paul actually talked about one other thing that also doesn't matter. It's not only what we do that doesn't matter, it's also who we are, who we are. And I mean our background. As Paul says in verse 5, he said he was circumcised the eighth day, and then he says he's of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul is of the pure-blooded people stock of Israel. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a real Hebrew, really passionate, committed to 
these people. If we were to say something similar, we might say, oh, he's as American as apple pie. Paul was in a privileged position. He had a natural and an ancestral advantage for knowing God. He was part of the people that had been set apart by the Lord. But even that, he has to count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Because the truth is that any privileges we have by our family background, our race, our nationality, they do not matter in God's kingdom. You're not going to have a bigger mansion in heaven because you're white or because you're an American. In heaven, those things don't matter. And they really shouldn't matter here. Now, the reality is that our privileges impact a lot of things about our life, and we cannot escape them here on earth. That's why a wise follower of Christ will use their privileges for God's glory. But even still, they have to recognize that when the question is, what is the meaning of life? Paul's conclusion in verse 7 is that whatever gains he had, whatever he thought was valuable, he now counts and considers a loss. It's worthless. Everything that he had and everything that he did add up to a net loss. Paul wisely realized that mankind at his best and at his worst is not acceptable to God. That's why Jesus says in Luke 14, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce, reject, refuse all that he has cannot be my disciple. Our old identity must be forsaken. It must be tossed aside when we come to know Christ. If you remember the story of the Exodus, just as Moses left Pharaoh's household, we have to leave our old way of life if we're to find meaning in Christ. Do you remember back to verse 3 where Paul says, For we are the circumcision? Well, one scholar, J.A. Mottier, put it this way. If the we in verse 3 is to have any meaning, it can happen only when you and he and she and I find, possess, and treasure Christ for our very own selves. Paul did this in the past. As he says in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. And it's something he continues to do. Verse 8, he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage. Paul's whole accounting of his life has changed. His gains of power and prestige he now considers to be losses. And when he suffers in this life, he knows that it is worth it. As Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what what shall a man give in return for his soul? Who we are 
what we do, they don't give meaning to life. Meaning and value can be found in only one thing. And this is what does matter. Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is the meaning of life. Knowing Christ is what matters. Life is about knowing Jesus, who he is, what he does, and the relationship that he has with us. Talking about faith in him, leaning on him, not working to save ourselves, not trusting in our background, but living in a relationship of trust. Now, it's one thing to say that, but what does it mean to know Christ? Well, Paul kind of breaks it down for us in the last four verses of this passage. He says first in verse 8 that this is something that has surpassing worth. So he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Christ has infinite value and excellence. And so what this means is that this loss we've talked about before, it really isn't a loss at all because we gain something so, so much better. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah puts it this way, quoting God, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That he knows God. Jesus puts it this way in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they Know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. As Paul puts it, everything else then is rubbish. It is garbage. Because knowing Christ completely changes the way we live. It changes the very meaning of our lives. As Paul puts in 2 Corinthians 5, He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but they live for Him who for their sake died and was raised. We're talking about a relationship with Christ, one that leads to eternal life, one that is ever-growing and increasing. And here we're seeing that other theme that Paul talks about all throughout the book of Philippians. In verse 1, we have the rejoicing, Finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. But here we have the theme of growing, of knowing Christ, growing in our understanding of Him. Peter would write about this in 2 Peter 3, 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we're a Christian... If we know Jesus, then Jesus becomes more and more valuable to us every day. As we know Christ better, we see his beauty more. And the more we know him, oh, the more we love him. The English pastor Charles Spurgeon put it this way, Get Christ and you have heaven on earth. And, meaning when you die, you shall have heaven forever. Forever. 
Now, when he's saying that, he's not saying that our life is going to be perfect here, that everything's going to work out great. But he's saying that if we're a Christian, we know someone who makes everything in this life worth it. We can have the joy of heaven even now. Now, maybe you've been told that Christianity or going to heaven, it's about a decision that you make. It's something you do once and then it's done. And there's an element of truth to that. It's true in a way, but it's also so much more than that because that decision you make leads into something wonderful. It leads you to a person, to Jesus Christ, the greatest person who ever lived, is living, or will live. And as a Christian, we get to know Him. This man Jesus existed for all eternity. He was fully God, fully man. He came to earth. He lived on our behalf. He lived an absolutely perfect life. And then he died to pay the penalty for our sin. He died to restore our relationship to God. And then he rose from the grave victorious over death on the third day. Only knowing this man, only knowing him can satisfy our deepest desires. A new job, a new car, a new house, a new relationship. That's not going to do it. Only Him. He will last forever. Any other joy that we have will be gone someday. And what we know about Him is important because we know His righteousness. We know His righteousness. This means that we know that we are right with God, just as Jesus is right with God. Listen to what Paul says. The very end of verse 8, he says, in order that I may gain Christ, and then into verse 9, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says we're found in Him. We're united to Christ in such a way that when people look at us, if they're looking for, if someone was looking for me, they would look and search, but all they could find was Jesus. Ideally, all that someone sees in the life of a Christian is Jesus's words and actions. And that happens because we have Christ's righteousness. We are right before God. We're not guilty before our Lord. This kind of righteousness and goodness, it can't come from what we do and obeying God's law because we all sin. We all make mistakes, fall short. We all reject God. We all seek the things that we want. In the book of James, he writes, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Again, as we said before, do it yourself. Faith cannot save us. God's way of making us right with Him depends on, it has its basis in faith. Through faith, God gives us, He imputes Christ's life of perfect obedience to our account. As we have faith and trust in Christ, He gives us Christ's goodness and righteousness. This is something that was predicted in the Old Testament. 
book of Isaiah 53.11, talking about the suffering servant, prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, he will make many to be accounted righteous. He will make many people righteous because, or and, he shall bear their iniquities and sins. Because Jesus took our sins, he can give us his righteousness and goodness, and we can know it. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy, and we see now in the New Testament in passages like Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, demonstrated, seen apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, this is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Salvation cannot be earned. It is a free gift of God's grace. For a Christian, for someone who knows Jesus, is has a life about knowing him, who has a relationship with him. When God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. When he looks at us, he doesn't see what we have done. He sees what Christ has done for us. Again, with Paul's words, we are found in him. God looks for us, but all he can see is his son and that we are in him, that we are with him. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus and what Jesus has done to pay for our sins. Friend, let me ask you, do you know this gift? This gift of righteousness, of having a restored relationship with God? This gift of knowing Christ? It can be yours because of what Jesus did. His call to you is to believe it, to repent, to turn away from your sin and rebellion against God and place your faith and trust in what Jesus has done. To seek to know Him. I encourage you to reach out, to get in touch with somebody who can tell you more about what it means to know Jesus Christ. I would be happy to have a conversation with you about that. You can get in touch with me at my email, jtoon at eshorebaptist.org. But seek more in God's word and talk to a genuine Christian about how you can know Jesus Christ because then you too will know his righteousness. It's not about what you do or who you are. It's about what Jesus has done and who he is. And then, for those of us who have embraced a relationship with Christ, well, we are able to know his resurrection power. His resurrection power. Look at verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We know the power that Christ has at the right hand of God. This is a power to overcome sin, a power to become more and more like our Lord and Savior. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, it says, If we have been united with Him, with Christ, in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If we know Christ, we know his resurrection power, and we're no longer 
slaves to the wrong we used to do. We do not have to do it. We are able to overcome sin. Now, we will never achieve that perfectly on this side of eternity, but we do have His power. We can live for Him. We can honor Him now. If you know Christ, you are able to fight sin. You are able to change. You are able to grow to be more like Jesus. Please do not give in or give up. The church is here to help you with that. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit within you to help you in that fight. If you know Christ, you know the power of His resurrection and the incredible impact and change that that can make on your life as you grow to be more like Jesus. Now, I know it won't always be easy. I know there's things that restrict us, fears, worries, possibly addictions. And I know it's difficult because another thing that we know when we know Christ is that we are sharing in His suffering, His death, but again, also His resurrection life. The end of verse 10 says, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We share his sufferings. We have fellowship with, we participate in the kinds of suffering, the rough experiences that Jesus went through on earth. And you know what? This is a really good thing. As Paul says, and again in 2 Corinthians, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. When we suffer, it should cause us to rejoice. Peter put it this way, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Part of knowing Christ is, yes, sharing that suffering. It's also becoming conformed, becoming like Christ in our death, our old nature, our sin nature is killed, is removed from our lives. And then we can attain, we can experience the resurrection from the dead, eternal life. Christ works that in us. We suffer with him. Our old nature dies with him. We experience resurrection, and eternal life. Paul's point in all of this is that meaning can only be found in knowing Christ, in knowing Christ. That is the meaning of life. Now, I've heard many people talk during this time, and I've heard people ask questions, myself included. What is the meaning of this COVID stuff. Well, what's the meaning of all these strange things that are happening that we've never seen before in living memory? Well, all of it is ultimately glorifying God, and there may be many purposes that we haven't seen or known, but I can say this with certainty to followers of Christ. The meaning of this is it is intended to help us know Christ better. The meaning of a pandemic, COVID, all that in the life of a Christian is it's helping us to know Jesus better. Because that's the meaning of life. That's what life is about. And I don't know all the specifics of how that works out for each and every person, but this is intended to help us know Christ. 
So the question you need to ask yourself is, is that happening now? Am I knowing Christ better? Am I growing in my trust in Him during this time? Now, if you don't know Him, well, then of course that's not happening. You need to know Him. You need to come to know Christ and make your life about that. But even if we're a Christian, we can sometimes become distracted by fears, worries, and anxieties. And instead, we need to make our life about knowing Christ better. See this all as an opportunity for greater trust, greater knowledge of who He is, and a greater change in our life as we know Him better. If our focus is on anything else, that won't satisfy. But when our focus is on knowing Christ, then we will know meaning. We will know that our life has meaning. And when He is our focus, as Paul said back in verse 1, then we can rejoice in the Lord because He is the only one who is worthy of praise. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that what we do and who we are doesn't matter, but knowing Christ, knowing You does. Help us to understand the surpassing worth of knowing You. God, if anyone doesn't, I pray that they would know Your righteousness that's found through faith in Your Son. Pray, God, that You will help those who know You to know Your resurrection power and that You would help us to know that we share in Your sufferings, Your death, and Your resurrection life. Lord, thank You for loving us. Thank You for being faithful to us. Help us to grow in you, to know you better, and to rejoice in you every day. It's in your name I pray. Amen.